So we're mid-conversation. There'll be an intro in the description and whatever. But uh, I'm with Catherine, and we're talking about her new book, which will, which is forthcoming. And um, it's about co-parenting when you split up. And, uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up around it. It was I, I grew up on the Upper East Side, and, like, every my parents were, like, the only parents who both – like, like, they picked me up every day for the – like, until I didn't get picked up. And – I remember they used this language. They, they, they called divorced families broken homes. And I was always so upset by that because I was surrounded by friends who were, you know, traumatized, who were really messed up from the way that their parents were, were splitting up. And I remember my parents having just like being super hardcore about it. They were like not sympathetic to it. They just kind of kind of looked at it and they were like, I don't know. They did, yeah. They didn't like mix any words with it. I remember the phrase "broken home" being so harsh, and I wanted to be more compassionate for what was going on with the with, with the kids that I knew, my, my you know my peers. And it was so, man. It was like, so you've done it well, with right. With and to me, it's like it's you know, and I grew up in a in a single mom home as a kid also. And, and we lived in an apartment complex where all the kids were single. It was always like you lived with your mom and you saw your dad once in a while. You know, I, I didn't know, I didn't have a dad. So I, I was one of the only ones where that was just a single mom. It just but it, it's the, to me, it's just a severed family is often what happens. And the, and the cool thing is like, it doesn't have to be that way. Like my kids do not have a broken family or a severed family or broken home because we decided we wouldn't let that happen. Good. So all the, you know, all holidays together, you know, every school thing, we're like united sitting together always. We go into each other's houses. Every time we pick each other up, I don't stand in the driveway and collect the kids. I go in, sit down, often he gives me food. He shows me what he's working on. How was my day? I share what's going on with him. If his wife's there, we'll chat and hang out. Same thing over here. My partner is very, you know, good friends with him. And the kids just see like we're a family. And when there's issues, we all talk. And sometimes we'll call our FaceTime dad if we need to all talk like right then. And there's just so much alignment. And, you know, we had, when they were younger, we did vacations, you know, there's just so much the, the whole point of the book is to have an intact family. Yeah. Just because you two don't want to be together anymore, you can have, and I talk to my kids all the time about it, and they really are like, you know, of course it's ideal to live in the home with your parents, but it's also a good idea to split up, because believe me, I've, I'm a coach, and I also have sat in 12-step rooms, and I've also just talked to humans for, I'm 50, I've been asking people their experience my whole life, and living in a house with two parents that fight or don't genuinely get along or love each other is just as brutal as having a severed divorce, broken home scene. I remember I had my girlfriend in high school. So what was so strange is I, I, I listened to my parents because my parents were so it, like their judgment was so heavily uh, on my shoulders that like dating someone from a broken home, you know, was like spell for disaster. So I listened and I ended up dating someone who had, two parents who were still together they hated each other so much 
And I remember I would stay in their house all the time and they would yell at each other. They would, you know, I would talk to the father would come and like, we'd have a heart to heart and he would share with me, you know, he'd tell me what's really going on. And like, he would just betray his wife and his family, like so viciously. He was actually like, this was, I, I feel like I was the only one that he spoke to that way. It wasn't like, he, he wasn't like this bad, I, I actually felt like he, he thought he was doing, he was almost a martyr, keeping his family together. That's how he kind of felt. And he was this like, like he wasn't the one who was vocal. The wife, the mom was, would yell at him and he would just take it. And then I would hear once in a while, like in intimate moments, he would share right. how he really feels. And, and that sounds like a codependent relationship where he didn't have boundaries. And then his kids had to grow up seeing like a pretty dysfunctional relationship, which then of course will affect oh, yeah. the way they have relationships. Yeah. And I remember having a talk with my and mom. We would fight like that. We would, we would have these ridiculous fights all the time. And like, I'm not a fighter and she would just, you know, I, I really, I re didn't realize till later that this wasn't the way that I wanted to be. And I would react to her and we would fight all the time. And I was like, what? And afterwards I was like, that, that was nuts that I would do that. And yeah. I've never had that since. I just don't do that. And you can't get along. I think, I think it's good to throw in the towel. If you've done everything you can, I'm really, Oh my God, they should have divorced decades ago. And be friend, you know, like when we were divorcing by the end, it was tense and we were not being cool to each other. Yeah. We called it. And now, you know, I consider him one of my top three people in my life. You know, we started this conversation, Catherine and I, based on from her Instagram, the link in bio is, it is a grape joke, which is which is John Herndon's new album, which I just listened to and I love. Uh, one of the the guys from Tortoise, and you're promoting it, and that's how I that's how I heard it. And you know, I've always I love the concept of team. I have an ex girlfriend who I I think of sort of this way that like we gave each other these things, and like we won. The winning the win wasn't staying together. The win was like she got these things from me and I didn't learn this for three or four years later when she like wrote me this beautiful note that like these things that she started doing after me were based on things we did together. And I didn't, I didn't really put that together because I was saying that forever. I was like, I became able to, to create things based on the way that she, like the framework that she gave me. And that meant, you know, living different lives. Like we, we invented new versions of ourselves together and then we weren't supposed to like be together anymore and and we got so much bigger afterwards yeah. and i i cite that as like the biggest success i'm the biggest cheerleader for her i think she's the greatest and and i think she says some other things about me and yeah like it's cool to see that you two doing this it's really beautiful yeah it's it's super important and you know the title of the book isn't set but i do think it is how to split without fucking your kids up and that was my only goal is like, okay, I don't want to be with this person. He doesn't want to be with me. We both want to still be happy and have like loving romantic relationship with someone else. Yeah. And how do not mess these kids up? Especially I grew up in, around nothing but divorced kids. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I sit and listen to people's attachment issues, you know, cause we all, we all have, there's three types of attachment, you know, there's, you know, avoidant, anxious and secure. And we're all one of them. Because I've never, I've never go into that more. Because I feel like there's, it, you know, and there's a book called Attached that I love. I feel like it's sort of a, a, 
a book that everyone, every human should get it when they're born and start reading it when they're like aware and maybe in their teens. But, you know, when you are raised in a, an environment where you aren't having a lot of trauma and you have like really securely attached parents, you are likely to be a securely attached person, which means you're good, you trust the universe, you know, you're not, ter all, all humans have issues to work through, but you're not terribly anxious or avoidant. Anxious attachment could be, look like if it's a partner, like they call all the time, like, I want to see you all the time. Where were you? You didn't call me back. They get very anxious when they don't have their attachment to you. And when there's a breakup, they're doing anything they can to keep together. They're, they rush in fast. You know, there's just this anxiously way, anxious way you attach. Avoidant attachment, which is what I am, working my way, you know, with lots of work to secure is, you know, you're, you feel trapped when you're in deeply intimate emotional oh. situations. You um, are very solo. You're very independent. You're the kind of person that can be like, I don't need to see my partner for a week and I'm cool. And if they're anxiously attached, they're like, why don't you love me? Why aren't you calling and texting me all the time? And, you know, avoidance tend to be the people that dip out of relationships or kind of shut down, don't need as much. They, they you know, so there's this, we are all you know, and, and there's a hybrid, like you can be avoidantly attached. And then if someone ditches you, you become anxious. And that's I think a I'm secure, but in love with avoidant. And we meet on occasionally, unfortunately, but, you know, it, we, we meet sometimes at secure, or uh, compassionately avoidant, but often at anxious. But I think I think I'm very okay with commitment but I don't tend to, you know, get serious about people who are also secure. I tend to get serious about people who are avoidant for sure. I know that I'm positive based on your description. And I think sometimes that causes us to meet in anxiety. And, and, that, and that can, you know, be a good jump off place to look at like, okay, so why am I attracted to people who are sometimes emotionally unavailable? You know, like what, what is that? And, I, I also am, when people are anxious, they send me running, you know, I, I think anxious is a lot for anyone to take, you know, like, yeah. and avoidant, you know. I know when I get anxious and I'm a different person and I'm, I'm horrible. Yeah. Well, and in our archetypes of like, you know, movies and film, the avoidant is always the cool one. The cool, the cool guy, the sexy, sultry woman is never anxious. Yeah. You're always this, you know, enigmatic kind of avoidant, you know. So I become that when I'm with secure. When yeah, I'm we, with someone who's who's in secure attachment, I become the avoidant attachment person. Well, and these these are these are cool to know even just beyond like I it's good to know like what your friend is or like the people who work for me. Like I've had people where I know they're anxiously attached to people and the way that I interact them or what I ask of them or how I communicate with them will be different than when I know I have an avoidant attached employee and right so it's, it's helpful to just sort of understand this attachment theory stuff in general it's like a little guide into like navigating humans I love it yeah yeah I I've never read this theory but I mean immediately that's why I was like go into this more because I was like immediately I understand how to apply that yeah but the I know why I do it I was I was surrounded with secure growing up my whole life but I didn't fit into the secure so I sought out avoidant 
Well, and I think I, if I you, wasn't assimilated properly. Right. If you know what you are and you know what your partner is, you'd also just that awareness. Funny. So today I was reading. Um, I was. I had. I just got done coaching, so I just did five hours of coaching. So I had this at my table because um, I was reading this this morning. Just like in the bathroom. Catherine's holding Eckhart Tolle's book, by the way, for yeah. anyone listening and not uh, a new earth, for anyone and not uh, not watching the video. It's very highlighted. Lots and, of notes. <laughs> and, you know, he it, it, the chapter I was reading is about changing your roles. And it says awareness is the greatest agent for change. And just that's so true, which is just awareness is the way to be a different person. And yeah. when you know your attachment style, especially because... I think everyone should be veering towards secure is every moment then in your relationship you have this awareness now like am i acting like an avoidant how would a secure person act right now what would be the action to support me changing my role from avoidant to being a secure securely attached woman what how what do i need to do to uphold this new role i've given myself which is to be the secure woman not the avoidant woman um so just that awareness is how you change. It's so cool. It's so simple, but so big and hard. At the I same totally point. agree. I mean, I'm thinking about the most important, the two most important people to me are very close to one another. Like basically like my, the last two women I've dated are like, they know each other very well and they share some of these avoidant tendencies. And I have, it's been this like awareness curve for me and I can track, like we talk about it and I can track like moments where, and I fuck up, you know, I, I don't nail it. I, I did a really bad job at first and then I learned a ton and then I did a much better job, but then like I messed up later. And yeah, I know that that's like a huge arc for me is awareness of how the avoidant receives what I think is security, stability, but it doesn't come, it doesn't land that way like to you when you're encountering a woman who's secure attached not secure as a person a lot of avoidant people are secure and confident people but i mean securely attached like really open to like giving and receiving love what does that feel like when you're with someone like that my last so before that the one who i spoke about like my ex-girlfriend who we broke up really like successfully you know and like beautifully that was that and I was, con I didn't use this language, but I was conscious of what I was doing at the time because I was with like anxious before. And I remember consciously saying, I said to my friend, I'm going to stop doing that. That makes me crazy. I don't want that anymore. There's this girl in my life who's really nice, shows up, likes me, pays attention, is responsive to my, you know, when I'm upset, she like asks questions. Like she's, she's securely attached. And I consciously went to explore that. This was in my mid twenties, like like twenty four probably. Um, this is like ten years ago, um, and uh, I loved it. But the problem was, we were not like in love with each other romantically as much as we were sort of ideologically almost. Like we were, we we loved each other so much. And we were so supportive. We were such a good team. We were like a better team than we were a couple. Maybe it's similar to what to what you know you, to to what you and John. I don't. I don't. I don't want to project it all. But like, I. That's what we were an amazing team. And like everyone wanted us to be together. But we just like didn't 
go home and like have that. We just didn't love each other in that way versus other people that I've encountered. So, so I've never had the, the feelings that I have for the two women that I, I reference who are avoidant. I don't feel that way for anyone who is secure. Not, not cause I wouldn't just because it, I haven't met that person. So I have, I can think of one person in my life who is like secure attachment, but I just don't feel the same way that I feel. But yeah, I just, why it's like, you know, the stars have to basically align for any of us right. to be, because it's like, am I attracted to you? Do we have chemistry? Are you the right attachment style for me? Like, cause you can be super crazy attracted and that you think they're the funniest, smartest, best person in the world. You have the best sex ever. And if right. your attachment styles are off, it's going to be torture once you get past your six month, like honeymoon phase, yeah. you know? So it's like getting all that stuff lined up is, you know, that's why there's so much dating and why it takes a while. I had this moment, I was at a Nick Cave talk with, uh, it was a screening and then he talked after. It was before he did these like, the, the tour of the talks. It was with, uh, it was with Andrew Dominic, the filmmaker that they, they did their, their album film together. And Nick started talking about Susie, his, his wife, Susie, formerly Susie Bick, Susie Cave. And they came together with these lives he was a rock star, crazy heroin addict. And she was this like famous socialite model, paparazzi, like flying all over the place. And he was talking about how they brought like energetically, how they connected. And that was when I had this epiphany about what you're talking about, about how like the secure and the avoidant, I didn't call it that, but I realized the girl who I was, who I was seeing at the time that I, what I was doing to her that I was putting this pressure on her that was not right. That I was, um, she was communicating perfectly fine with me. I wasn't hearing what I wanted to hear. And it became in my definition a violation, but it wasn't really a violation. She just is who she is. And she's doing things the way that she's doing things. And my, I was not, so I, I was attracted to her, but I wanted her to be different. And what, you know, what I heard Nick Cave talking about was like when the two of them learned how each other were and were able to adjust to those things. And that was a big moment for me. And, and I came to her and tried to, you know, we, we, we tried. Yeah. Like I just wasn't good. I didn't execute it well enough. And we still try. We made a movie together last week. Like <laughs> we're, we're in each other's lives, but not thing like trying to go into anything where you feel like you can shift someone to be what you want. It just never works. It just doesn't. I, I fucked that up. Yeah, exactly. Like I thought I was going to like be more like she was running a clothing line and she was like chaotic. And I was like, I'm going to make her business more organized. And like, I fucked up, you know, I was, I was thinking wrong. Or be saved. It just always. Yeah. Does. It was listening to Nick Cave that made me like, I'm not going to do that anymore. So now it's like, I'm super accepting of, yeah, like this is, like, I didn't realize that I was a person who could just, like you said, like, I'm good now at like, you need a week, not like a few hours, like you need a week to not like, to not talk. And that's not with anger. That's not like when we're mad at each other. That's just like regular. Well, I think too, a lot of people, I'm very interested in and in do a lot of studying and I'm a relationship coach. 
certified co that I, I do relationship coaching as my whole other career outside of music and um, coaching in general. And the most adults have never really been alone. Like most dating adults or people in relationships meeting, we start hanging out with people when we're 16, 17, 18. And most people don't have, even the time they consider to be alone often is dating or hooking up or something. Yeah. Something. You know, and versus like fully alone, you know. When like, did you for the first time have alone time? Well, ironically, so I turned 50 this year and my partner and I had split in November because I was emotionally unavailable in that he's like, we've been together for years. Like, what are we doing? We should live together. Like your kids are close, you know, like I need to do what normal people do, which not that there's a normal, everybody has to do the same thing, but you know, it, so he, you know, needed to put a boundary down and kind of stop. And I chose to do, I did three months of no contact with all men, including my friends. I did a very deep dive and I did a very, you know, cause we get a lot of energy from our, you know, and if you're a man, maybe it's women, you know, if you're a gay male or a gay female, it's a little more complex, but we get energy from people. And so I just did a full, like, and this was right before the pandemic. Yeah, I did a while. So you went right into February with this. Yeah. And so I, I did like three months of like really real deal, like no men, no, cause normally I would just be like, all right, that didn't work. Who's next? Like, uh -huh. let's keep it moving. And then idealize it, meet someone great, go fast and furious into it emotionally, sexually, like really in, and then realize I don't really know that person. And, then I want to get out. I want to leave. I want to back out. Or I feel that like I have to stay in, even though I'm not sure it's the right fit. And I think that's a common pattern from what I've heard from many people. Um, and so I wanted to do a lot of deep diving and I do a lot of deep diving in general. And, but taking that off the table and be truly alone. And, you know, the goal is self-love where you're like, totally happy and fulfilled on your own. You're not like, oh, I can't wait for this to be over so I can go be with someone. And even when I ended it, um, I dated someone a little bit. And when I saw that there were things that weren't right and I wasn't going to change this person, I immediately called it. You're super awesome. I'd like to move us back to friends. I'm not even going to go here. You know, and in the past, I wouldn't have done that. I would have you, you know, there's so I'm going to keep doing this and try to get you to be what I want you to be. And, and then I spent a lot more time alone and I wasn't super aggressive about meeting someone or being with someone time for it to happen. Yeah. Well, and also like online dating in Los Angeles, when you're a 50 year old woman is like a fucking joke. Like it's hilarious. Like it's, it's really interesting. Um, it was, that was a very interesting, um, kind of sociological experiment. And, you know, I was just like, well, why am I trying to date? Sometimes I'd find myself looking at like Raya or something and I'd be like, I actually don't even want to, like, why am I doing this? Because I think I'm- Oh, I came across that a few years ago. Yeah, I was like, wait, what? My value system, like, I don't want this actually. And yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it just kept, you know, and, and the good news is through all this, and then, you know, microdosing was really cool and helped really tackle some like deep, you know, feelings of those like 
you can do therapy, shaman, you know, I'm a coach. I write, like I do everything, you know, and, and sometimes you still get to that core little thing and you're like, how do I yeah, get I went through your, your site where you list like your, you know, all the things that you like, literally it's just like things that I do. And yeah. it's, I, I do a bunch of those actually. I connect with more of, I didn't realize this until I just looked at it today. Cause I know you more on the music side, but I didn't realize that our li our you know, our lives kind of align a lot more than, than I, than I knew. So. Oh, that's cool. And so, you know, long story short, very long story short, you know, I got to the point where I, like Eckhart Tolle's talking about, like really wanted to redo my role. My role, because I had a lot of stuff go down as a kid and, you know, I just discovered my father and a whole family this last year on 23andMe that I didn't know existed. Oh, wow. it was, I've, had, I've had a very wild year and all of that, you know, has created, you know, I come from Michigan, you know, not a lot of money and people don't really live where I'm, leave where I'm from. It's got kind of a gummo vibe to it. And so it's always, my role has always been like, I'm a solo badass who's gonna go get out of here. I watched Flashdance when I was young. I snuck into the movie and I was like, holy shit. I just watched it because it's on Netflix. I watched it like a month ago. Yeah, like she lives in this loft. She's the self-created person. She's sexy and artistic and sophisticated, but she also like welds and like is a badass. Yeah. And so she became my archetype in my role and I've never let go. And it's always been like, I'm solo. I have, I'm a soul sort of proprietor in life, you know, and I got myself where I own my house alone. I own buildings in Chicago alone. I rehab them by myself without even a contractor. And I've just, that was the role. And it, it's, it helped me. It helped me to get to where I'd be, but it has not served me emotionally with my love partners, with my friends, my children. Here's one. How do you feel about the male love interest in Flashdance? I don't even remember his name, but you know. Well, to me, he's fantasy. You know, he's he's the part of like to me like sex and love addiction and all that kind of stuff. It's like fantasy. Like, oh, of course, this like beautiful, rich, introspective man's gonna come along Lots. and you, yeah. you know, kind of butt up against him. But like, he's gonna love you for the incredible like you know dynamic way. It's very fantasy. You know, like most movies, um, and. But I've this year decided through all the work I've done, I'm like, no, it's much, it's so powerful to be vulnerable. It's not this year, it's been many years, but, um, and so my role now is not like tough guy, badass, independent solo woman who takes care of business. Yes, that's, I, that is how I operate. But my role is like, I'm a really open, loving, nurturing, emotional woman. That's my new role. That's the role I want to be. And I've been doing all this work towards because if you can, it's kind of like Code of the Samurai. If you can be sort of, you know, powerful and get things done, but you can also be really open with your heart. And I'm very open with my heart to friends, the world, everyone, but the actual partner in my life. That's how most people are like they're that have the same issues that I have gone through is you can be awesome to everyone else, but when it comes to, you, you save all your special bullshit just for your partner, you know? And, and so this new role, everything I do has to support that role. You know, the way I speak to someone, the way I'm about to approach something, I'm like, does that support the role that I am now? 
you know, do I need to rephrase that? Do I need to reapproach this? You know, and, and the good news is I, I am reconciled with my partner and we're coming back to the table as very different people because reconciling people can keep coming back together, but if nothing has shifted, you will be right back where you were. Yeah. So it's, it's all interesting relationships and humans are the complex dance for everyone always. Well, that's, that's, it's funny, like, uh, it's something that I've thought about you is, is, is I've seen, you know, your transition, like your hair is like the literal physical embodiment of this transition that you just described in a real, like you, you now have this, like, you know, you're wise, like, you know, it's, it's almost, it's like almost Gandalf and, and it's such power, like you're, you're, but it's, it's power and vulnerability and it's like, you I really I've always like I just I think your hair is amazing and it evokes so much of what you just said without like you don't you didn't have to like tell me that for me to like feel it in your life like I could have I could have guessed that that like you yeah it's it's it, it's evocative I think it's amazing my hair my whole life was actually like yours oh yeah and bigger and like red. Oh red yeah, I've seen you say that. Yeah, that, that and I didn't know you when it was big. Yeah. One summer I was at a. I've a, seen you with long reddish brown hair up until a few years ago, but I've never I seen you with big. This is how it grows? Like I just don't do anything now. I just wash it. Wow. And I was, it just was white. It was so strange. Nobody in my family has white hair, or that I know of. But I have a whole new family, so that was all a big. I found out who my father was and a whole family and I discovered this entire family but I also discovered that part of my family that I thought was my family is not my family so DNA tests are quite interesting what you've had some crazy I just this week literally so I've, I've been in um I've been in New York for now three weeks and I was in Mexico for the whole year before that. And I, I, I went cause I was like really sick at the end of the year and I just went to like convalesce and feel better. So since then I've been like doing a lot of doctor stuff and nutritionist stuff. And I spoke to this, uh, this doctor, um, actually an LA nutritionist and she was reading my 23 and me and all this DNA stuff. And it is insane. She was like, like she has never met me before. We were doing a FaceTime and she was like rattling off all these things about me that I was like, it sounds like I'm talking right now. I'm describing myself. Like it's crazy how much you could tell from, from genetic reading. I mean, the 23 and me stuff. One thing I thought was like, they get so micro. They're like, you hate mouth noises. Like they, they get that micro, like yeah. you, you are genetically predisposed to be irritated when you hear people making mouth noises. Wow. Which is totally true for me. And when I read yeah. it, I laughed out loud. I'm like, it seems like the onion or something. Like it doesn't I know. Seem it sounds like she, she was telling me the way that I handle focus and multitasking and stuff. And I was like, it sounds like I am describing my, you know, my methods. And she's like telling me what pisses me off and stuff. Like you just said, it's wild. Yep. And are you okay now? Are you back to feeling yourself? Oh, no. Oh, I don't know what feeling myself is, but uh, I'm not okay with the way that I feel. Um, basic, long story short, like I had a hypothesis, like a working diagnosis for a few years of uh, that I was having withdrawal symptoms from like bad medicine I took as a kid. And that was supposed to get better 
if we were like according to what the work I was doing and it just and it didn't it got worse so as of this winter I was like okay hypothesis is broken I need to you know like re you know I need to start from scratch so um no I'm very like I'm not even a month in um just getting blood readings and all this stuff um but I have some rough ideas of like what's going on with me but I haven't put anything into action yet so I'm still feeling pretty What's good is that my uptime is like, like I lose a few hours of the day because when, like when I don't feel well, but my uptime is 100%. Mm-hmm. So I reach, unless like this winter, I lost that for the first time in like years, but I'm fine. I'm myself, you know, if you, if you want to like, I feel myself like right now I'm talking to you. I'm not lost. I'm not 75%. I will, I will have to, I will lose parts of like, I only, I I want my hours back in the day. You feel not yourself when you feel down. What does it look like? So it manifests itself probably three ways. Like my skin is the most obvious and my skin is super fucked up and, and inflamed and, and, you know, I, I itch and stuff. Um, and then my, so it's something connected with like digestion and energy. And so that was the thing that, so the di- the diagnosis was that it's like just this withdrawal symptoms. And I definitely have those, but it's like the way that I eat. Like I can fat, I, I saw you talk about fasting and like, I'm way more extreme with that. Like if I eat eight hours a day, I'm exhausted. I I can only, if I, every time I eat, I get tired. My body processes things. A doctor explained it to me. He ran some tests and explained like, so I release insulin at a different time than I, than I uh, break down the glucose. So I get tired before I get the nutrients and it'll take me days. So I can, I can fast for five days and like, it's nothing. The only thing is in my head because I love eating. And I just want that stimulus. But if I fast for five days and just do liquid, like I am rocket. I'm so I'm feeling amazing. I can exercise even. Like worst case, I might get like I might like uh, if I put my head down and lift it up fast, I might get lightheaded like that. But that's it. But yeah, the the bad stuff is like low energy when I eat and scratching. You know, just in inflammation digestion like doesn't really bother me too much it's like just i just need to sort of factor that in to like i won't digest certain things sorry i i assume you've done full elimination diets to see if different foods create this reaction i'm doing that like a hardcore full-on elimination diet now like i'm basically like i'm drinking herbal I, i normally drink tea like throughout the day and i'm not drinking tea because I'm avoiding caffeine. So I'm doing that right now. I've done specific elimination diets. Like I've eliminated caffeine for a month. I've eliminated meat for a month, you know, stuff like that, but I've never done everything. So I'm going to, I'm going to do that now and see where my body goes with like a full on, like I'm only eating white fish and certain vegetables and stuff like that. And yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I know those elimination diets, the hardcore ones, um, are big and you, you know, you go from broth and then you just kind of keep adding stuff in and then just seeing how it 
manifests. Yeah. So I'm going to try. It's not broth. It's just like avoiding 90% of what I eat. And like, so I was just doing grocery orders and I was just trying to figure out like what I can order. So it's like halibut. So I can make halibut and I can make like bison, but I can't make beef. Um, so I'm trying it. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. Oh, I hope it works out for you. That's <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I love food, but I think I can, I think I can remove it. I think I can just remove the stimulus of tea is harder for me to remove than food. I really love tea and it really, it's like my meditation. So according to like the genetic stuff, I don't, so I do TM also and I don't go where like Penny Hints is my teacher and you probably know her, right? Don't know Penny. Okay. Um, but whatever, like one of Lynch's friends. And I just, I talked to her about it. Like, I don't go where people describe that they go. And it's like a cortisol thing. Same thing when I sleep. Like if, if I get a call, if I wake up, like I could be mid conversation and be right in it. I don't, I don't go where other people go. So I meditate, but it's an active, it's, it, I, I'm active when I'm doing it. So I meditate with like a focus and I go in to my mantra and like I have my screenplay in mind and I'm like thinking about, I'm going through the plot and stuff. I don't like disappear. So tea actually helps me do that. I'll go into my tea different than I will go into my TM. TM is just like an isolation for me. Mm -hmm. different I don't know how does it feel for you um for me TM I mean it changes all the time because we're always showing up every day as a different person with different stuff happening um I tend to when I'm doing it really regularly I do fall into what they call transcendence and I don't know how long it's for but it's it's usually feels very short um but even just a little short jolt of it is, is it's it's like a reset button it makes it feel like your whole body chemistry just gets reset um you know so that the chatter you know it's like a fountain it just it's like a spewing fountain of all the chatter you know and then and then really good ideas come once the chatter is is gone and then i just keep going back you know into thinking it the mantra and I do get into that fuzzy, like you're disconnected from you, tingly feeling. And then usually I'll have the awareness, oh, you're having the fuzzy, tingly feeling. And then that takes me out of it. Okay. You know, so, you know, I guess a goal, although I, I suppose you're not supposed to have goals with meditation, because then you're putting expectation on yourself, you're going to control your meditation. Um, but I, I do, I do like, you know, when you get that detached, feeling i think that's why people do psychedelics and they do you know different things to detach from their ego and their active conscious self and they're just sort of this other such a cool feeling and it's it's so interesting to have it so if you can even get it for a few minutes a day it seems pretty cool it happens to me a few months ago or, or like in February I was in Mexico and um, 
I still don't really know entire. I've talked about this a bunch. I don't know what happened. I don't know if I was drugged or if it was sunstroke or what. But basically, I lost. Like I started resetting. I was awake. I was like, con- I was regular, and I started resetting every few seconds. It started with like every minute or two, and then it started every few seconds where I would just sort of like I wouldn't fall asleep. Like you could be looking at me and you wouldn't know it was happening, but in my head I was resetting, and. I was like relearning what was going on. And I figured out that I could only achieve in each uptime, I could only achieve either a thought or a physical action. I couldn't do both. So I would talk in the same cadence repeatedly, like for a while until I shifted, until I consciously shifted it and said, oh no, no, that's not how I talk. Like, so I was talking in voices kind of, it was wild. And I was aware of this happening. So each uptime, I was aware of what was happening, and then I would just lose it, but, but remember. And I would, there would be chains, and I wouldn't necessarily know how long the chain was of, of memory. And like, so I, I ended up going into this book that I had read and acting out the book. And I didn't know if I was consciously doing it or not. Like, I eventually outpaced my memory. Um, but I was automatic, which was, I, I learned the, the, the power of it of what I learned at the time was the power of like going automatic like that and losing uh, my cognitive, my logic, my, my directional thought that way that I was just like, literally I was just being carried down the street inexorably. Cause it was like, I didn't know why my, my foot was going to continue moving and carrying me forward, but I didn't necessarily know why. And I was doing it anyway. Just doing this? Say, say again, it cut out. This was happening to you. Did you feel anxious? I felt anxious about my safety, but that was it. I was hyper aware. I was like doing a Jason Bourne in this. So I was in, a, I was in like a cafe bar when it first started and I, I was alone. It was before it opened. So I was like the only person there and I'm looking around and I'm talking to my friend at the same time because I was like trying to get like a witness, you know, like an anchor person once I became aware of it. And I'm describing, I'm like, did someone drug me? Am I getting, you know, so I was anxious about bad things happening. But beyond that, so I was worried that I was going to touch a knife. I was worried that I was going to fall off of something. I was worried that I was going to veer into traffic. I was worried about things like that. That I was going to be supporting myself, like with with my hand leaning on something, and then forget and fall. I was worried about that, but that was the anxiety. The rest was beautiful. There was this um, moment of euphoria that I remember distinctly. I went on this spree. I was laughing. I was screaming. I was just doing. I was howling because I kind of realized I was automatic, and I was like, I have never done it before. I've never lost myself in the way that you described. I've never done drugs. So I've never done, I've never had this and I was celebrating it. So I was very, very happy during it. And I didn't actually want it to end. I, would, I loved it. Do you know what it was or are you not sure? We don't know. Wow. It was sunstroke or I got drugged, but it just like, like that's what, that's my hypothesis, but I really have no idea. Situation where you would have been drugged? That's what I, I was in Mexico. I was in Oaxaca in a place that like, it's honestly not the best place to drug someone. It was like on a strip of like expat kind of cafes that are like pretty solid and secure. I wasn't in like a weird area. There was no one in the bar, all of the, um, so, I mean, I don't think I got drugged because 
they succeeded, you know? <laughs> and like, I would have, so the only thing was it happened after taking a sip, like a couple sips of a drink and I hadn't had a drink in a while. So what, what, what my friend thinks is that I was sun, sunburnt. I was in the water and my head was swirling from like body surfing. And then I took a sip of alcohol for the first time and it just like, it just clocked me. It just, it just messed me up. It's totally possible that I took a tiny dose of something, of a drug, and I started down a trip, but I didn't get fully there. So it's possible that I was supposed to pass out had I had the whole drink, but they didn't know that I've never been exposed to it. And so I started reacting immediately because I've never had drugs before. So it's totally possible that I had like a sip of a dose and that they didn't like, so nothing happened. That was the thing. Like they didn't attack me or anything. So I, they would have, you know, done something if I were being drugged, but it's possible that they wanted me to pass out and I didn't. And since I didn't pass out, they left me alone and I walked back to my hotel and I had, and they didn't break into the hotel room because like that's escalation of this thing. So it's possible. I don't, I really don't know though. Wow. That's crazy. But it was beautiful. Like, I loved it. Right. Well, and especially if you know why you're feeling that way, then that would take that other element off. <laughs> it was that unknown that was the fear. Yeah, all the fear was very practical. It was like, am I going to get stabbed? Am I going to get, like, like kidnapped or something right now? That was it. Other than that, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I wanted it again. My friend was, like, was, like mad at me when I was talking like that after the next day. She was like, no, that was scary. Like, don't do that again. And I was like, but it was like euphoric. It was, I went somewhere. It's cool. Mm. Maybe I should do drugs. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if you, you know, there's, there's, you know, plant medicine, you know, I don't even look at it like drugs. That right. definitely take you into those conscious places where you- I gotta go to Peru. What's that? I gotta go to Peru. Or LA, it's a whole lot of it happening here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were doing ceremonies like right in my, like in the house next door in Mexico, but I didn't do anything. I, I, I would like to do it like in a different place if I do it at all. I want it, like I would wanna go to the jungle. I would want the whole thing, not like in my house, you know? I don't know. Yeah. At least the first time. Yeah, if you have the ability to do it in South America, in Peru with a shaman, that's the ideal. Yeah, that's what, that, I was actually thinking about it before, you know, before COVID. That was what, instead of going to Mexico, I was going to go to Peru and then everything. I was in Mexico already and I thought I was doing another trip, but that never happened. But someday, I'm down to do it. So where in your, in your life, in your timeline, when did you go from, you know, just like for anyone listening who doesn't have, you know, the background and didn't Google, like, you know, Catherine has done publicity and management for major, major, major artists, like, you know, The Weeknd, Daft Punk, Skrillex, co-founded Ausla with, with Sonny and Tim, um, major a-listers 
And over the last few years, you've shifted your focus from not, not abandoning that at all, but shifting focus onto the, you know, life coaching and what, how, however you describe it. But what, when did that, what was the timeline of that? The timeline was about four years ago um, is when it kind of started. You know, I've always done a lot of deep diving and, you know, I went to school and, and after, I have two degrees and one degree is in psychology. And I, I moved to Chicago with the intent of being a therapist and going to the University of Chicago and I didn't have any money and that's an expensive school. And so I, I got a real job, like a corporate job. And then I just fell into music and I started booking like a independent music festival and I started doing working as a promoter in like a large venue or uh, doing uh, promoting of the shows, not being the promoter. And so I got, you know, sidetracked and went into music. So I always had this intention of helping people and helping them around, you know, emotional well-being stuff. And then years later when I met um, my ex-husband, John, you know, which was during the indie rock heyday tortoise years, Back then, I was like, I would eat chili cheese fries and drink like beer and Jägermeister and chain smoke cigarettes. So I had zero wellness in my life. You know, where I come from, people don't do that. Um, and I always had stomach issues, always. And it was because I ate like shit. And I just always said, oh, I have stomach issues. You know, oh. I remember one night Johnny was like, you don't have stomach issues. And he took a Tums out of my hand and he went into this major intersection of the street and I can't remember what he wrote, but he wrote something with my Tums, which is this chalk, you know, and he introduced me to, that was the first time I ever had tofu. This was in the, like 1996, probably. Um, that was the first time I had seaweed salad. That was, you know, and I, and he at one point said, you're really aggressive, you know, like, I, you know, I, I don't know if I can handle how aggressive you are because I was sort of a fighter. And, you know, he encouraged me to go to therapy. And so I went to therapy pretty much to like keep the guy, you know, and that, and then Thomas Campbell, this visual artist you, you might know, he turned us on to Vipassana meditation, where you go 10 day silent meditation. You can't look at anyone. You can't read, you can't write, you can't talk. You know, you eat your dinner at like 11 AM, you get up at 4 AM to meditate. It's so life-changing. So the culmination of therapy that and just being introduced to a different way of life flipped me. And I kind of never looked back. So that was 20 years, 25 years ago. So I'd been on that path for quite a long time of this, you know, for lack of a better word, wellness, you know, because it worked. Like all the stuff worked. And I was like, it's not bullshit, it's, it works. And my biggest thing is spreading it, not to the choir, but getting the kind of people I grew up with or I work in rap music, you know, I have for many years been talking with young rappers, you know, about like, do you drink water? Are you open to seeing a therapist? Are you open to seeing a shaman? Like, what's your emotional well-being like? Like, I take people to 12-step programs, like, you know, for everything from, you know, alcohol and drugs, but to like sex and love. And so I've always just been trying to like show people who don't already you know, didn't grow up in like LA with parents who fed them seaweed and, you know, got them therapy to show like, oh, this stuff is really real. You know, it, it really works. Um, and about four years ago or so, I started to get really frustrated with how much I saw, like my job was to make people famous, but then I just saw so many people who were unhappy and not just even 
the people I work with, but just people I know, so many people in our industry. And, you know, it's the cliche, rock and roll cliche, but all the success in the world doesn't mean anything, you know, and I would even sit, I, you know, I would take people and go to recovery meetings and I would see some of the most famous people in the world in there. And, you know, it's obvious that success means nothing, you know, and if we don't deal with our issues, or that definition of success, whatever, you know. Yeah, you know, and, and so I applied to grad school, even, you know, got on my old, I, I was, the process was fully going for me to go to grad school to be a therapist, and I was going to do it on the side, and it was going to be really challenging, because I'm a single mother of two children who are in school, like I have school-aged children, so it was going to be like, okay, you already have this crazy, hectic business, and you're going to go to grad school and you have these kids that you know you have um and i'm a super hands-on mom i'm not, not not that this is bad but i've never like i've never had like nanny kind of situations or you know i'm like i make dinner every night i help with the homework i pick everybody up i you know and johnny helps me um so long story short my therapist said to me why don't you be a coach you would be an incredible coach you have a lot of life experience and I was like, like a life coach? And she said, yeah. And I'm like, oh, that sounds so bullshit. Like, I just don't know about that. And she said, no, there's some really legitimate programs. And so I did the research and, you know, you can become a life coach, you know, over a weekend or two at a Marriott, but there's a very legitimate way. And I went to the Center for Nonprofit in Los Angeles and this um, Dr. Damien Goldbar was the professor and there's this whole program and you have to be certified and you have to put in all these hours and you have to have, you know, quite a lot of hours to be a professional certified coach. And, you know, it's, it's very legit and it changed my life. Like the program I went through, it was all lawyers who were doing leadership coaching. So that's what the way I learned it, um, which means like executive coaching, like getting people to sort of their best level. And through me having a coach and getting my own coaching going, I realized that all these ideas had been swirling in my head for years that I never made happen. Like, wanting to help people, like wanting to write books, wanting to do lecturing and do talks and, you know, all these things that she helped me see. And I could immediately see that I could help the people in my community, meaning in the music industry and even a lot of the artists. And so my coach, professor, who's like a very respected, he used to be head of the ICF, which is the governing body of coaching, he was a longtime psychoanalyst therapist. And he's like, I'm just curious, why are you gonna be a therapist? You should be a coach. Like I spent 40 years to, to get to coaching. You should just do coaching. And so I started the, the difference between therapist and coach. A therapist is someone where you're looking at the past. There's a lot of looking back and doing a lot of, you know, deep work to work through issues. And I think therapy is super important. I feel like everyone should go to therapy and coaching you deal with all the same things. It's super emotional. I have lots of people crying and like, it's very emotional, deep work, but it's very proactive. Like even me with my love avoidance, my therapist, I'm like, how many decades are we going to just keep talking about this? But we just, nothing's changing with my coach. She's like, okay, this keeps coming up for you. What's our plan? And we made a plan and I just started to act in a way where I would get past it. And I feel like it was super helpful. And I am really like, you know, I've had more movement in the last year and a half on this than I did in 20 years of therapy. Um, 
And then I went back into school and certified to be a relationship coach. And I'm certifying this year in recovery coaching. So I often have, I, I, I coach a lot of people in Hollywood, uh, an actor and a director started working with me and they started recommending me. So now I, I we, strangely, even though I'm in music, I have a huge portion of my business are like Hollywood directors and producers and actors. And then I, I definitely do a lot of people in our industry. And then I do sliding scale, like, free for someone who has no job and doesn't, you know, have the means to do this sort of work. Um, and I do it a lot with my artists and I really started to see how much it was helping them and, and, and their plans for feeling like they have a plan for their life and not just, I want to be famous and rich and I'm actually super unhappy. So it, it had a really natural fit the way it fit into biz three. That makes sense. So it's just been going now and I have, a side practice. So Tuesday and Thursday evenings, I do it all day. Saturday, I've started to add morning appointments before I get into this three day work. But a lot of my artists and people ask me for their time with me to be around coaching. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's cool. So it's, it's been really, I feel like there's a lot of purpose in it. How has it affected the biz three team? I think for them, it's probably been really good because going through that kind of leadership made me realize like, you know, for many of my years, I, I would have people tell me that I was like intimidating force where, you know, and it changed the way I lead, you know, so I have, I am certain I am, you know, and I've been told I, I get feedback from them unsolicited, like what a f sort of fair, like compassionate leader I can be. And even when, we have hard talks because sometimes you have to have hard talks about performance or what's going on. I try, I'm sure I'm not perfect. I'm sure there's days where people are like, she's an asshole, but you know, I, I, I definitely feel like I lead with a lot of compassion and understanding. Sometimes people leave. I don't, I don't have, I'm, I'm a big believer in not holding grudges. I think grudges are just poison that we just keep eating every day. They do nothing but poison the person who's feeling it. You know, so I, yeah, I think it's shaped and changed the way I run the company very much so. That's nice. What about, so, you know, this, this pandemic time, what, like, for example, you know, Colin Kaepernick is one of your people, like one of, one of your clients, like what has that, how has maybe, your work in that sense informed the sensitivity around the, the, like this peak moment of, of culture around that. Meaning like how, how is my coaching, like have I been able yeah, to show up? So you, you're in the middle of one of the craziest moments in history. Like, like you, you come to this through like, you, you know, most people know you as, as like music publicist and stuff like that, but like you have this other world like that has been hyper, hyper, hyperactive right now. And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually, I'm personally interested, like what that the last few months have been like for you, you know, in that. That's, you know, and I have to have some level of like, you know, cause I have all this confidentiality. Yeah, don't say anything that's, that's, uh, that's. Maybe, maybe, maybe remove even, even cap from the, the question, like just in the sense of like where you fit, where you see yourself fitting, how your conversations, cause I'm not, I'm not at, at all. 
I don't care about like info about pandemic or like with the movement with the Black Lives Matter. They they kind of you know I'd say more Black Lives Matter movement, but like you can't we I don't think we're going to be able to talk about the Black Lives Matter moment without including the fact that it's that it happened the way that it happened you know in the moment that. Well, I perspective because I am a white woman who has been working in black culture for 25 years. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, the majority of my clients and anyone that I deal with is African-American. Um, definitely, largely. And, you know, I, the unique perspective I, I have is because I was raised in what I believe to be like, you know, racist white America, Michigan, you know, um, and I grew up, I, I, I remember sitting in cornfields watching Klan rallies. You know, I actually grew up with lots of people using the N word constantly and just, just like actively totally racist. And I left, I, I, I instinctively was like, never down with it, always knew it was wrong, always wanted to get out early on was totally a liberal activist. You know, it was always just that, that was kind of out of the gate that way, which is interesting and being raised that way. And, you know, not necessarily by my parents, but by the, the, the community around me, you know, just it was very red state back then also. Um, and, and then I've spent 25 years, you know, really closely in, in black America and and in families and in close relationships. And so there's like two sides that I see. And I felt, you know, with everything that's happened, I felt like an extremely strong, like I've always considered myself an ally, but it was like a really strong, like you need to really be an ally and be anti-racist, like step up your your own personal work to, to have those conversations with the people that you do have access to who aren't up on, you know, being an aware human being that is an anti-racist, you know, like that's the work of that you're supposed to help your white friends really elevate. And, you know, it, it has, you can't change racism if we don't ever get the racist to change. That's the motherfucker of this whole situation is we can do so much, but if we can't get those actual racist people to be different, we're just going to keep butting up against their stuff. Um, I used my coaching a lot to even even just like some of the, the people that I feel like an ally to in our industry, like a lot of black men and women who were just in so much pain, of course, and and trying to like really be of service in any way that I can toward them and then also to, to try to like use my privilege and my whatever cachet I have to help, whether that was like putting a lot of pressure on people to donate large amounts of money to give to the organizations. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of, you know, trying to help because I'm a coach. There's a lot of strategy involved. Coaching is strategy. So I was lending my efforts to multiple um, Black Lives Matter movement organizations. And I say that not meaning the organization of Black Lives Matter, but the movement, um, you know, to help lend any kind of strategy or organization and you know just basically it was it, the whole 
it's just been be of service, but times 10. Just yeah. keep but like extra be of service. I see that. So I, I mean, I, I talk a lot, like I, I talk a lot on my Instagram or whatever. And like, I imagine for you, like you said, times 10, there's a big part of this moment that people are terrified specifically white people are terrified, you know, all variations of white people, just non, you know, non BIPOC are terrified of, of speaking, of, of getting, of doing the wrong thing, of getting canceled. And I, how have you fit into, have you had those kinds of conversations? Have you had people come to you and be like confidentially, you know, how, yeah. I had a lot of, white people and prominent white people in different areas. Like, I imagine executives might come to you and be like, how, what, how do I write my statement for the company? You know? sure. And also just, you know, I don't, if I, I don't say something, I don't want to look bad. If I say too much, I look like a fake ally or I'm too late to the party or, you know, and, you know, and through my coaching, you know, I, I definitely just always try to advise of like, do what's authentically happening for you. If, if you, if you lead with authenticity and, you know, a big thing for me is like the internet and Instagram and Twitter in particular are really powerful. Like we wouldn't have seen what happened to George Floyd and like right. had the entire world stand up and be like, this is bullshit without social media, you know? And on the same tip, social media and, and all this sort of people really just in so much pain, like pointing lots of fingers in particular, like the white community pointing fingers at other white people out of guilt, shame, who knows? Like there, there's so much involved that it, it got like, it, it can really do your head in the, the internet for everybody, all people. And so while it's this huge, um, Tool. I've gone in a million directions, yeah, for, for the over the last six months. I've gone in so many directions. And, you know, and I have, I have black friends who have told me, like, I can't keep watching over and over different scenarios of black people being hurt and being disrespected. And it's like, like, it's almost like, turn it off, put your oxygen mask on, like, kind of get yourself regulated. And then, like, how do you use it for the good that it brings, disseminating information, call to action? And how do you not have it chip away at your soul so that you're in a constant state of panic? And it's like, you can't even sort of thrive or come up with good meaningful ways to like get through stuff like this. So, you know, that was something I, I, I do so many coaching sessions with people and I'd have to go look at my people, but I, I want to say that a, a very large majority of my clients are um, people of color and, and, everyone was having everyone was in different forms of anxiety and struggling with you know their voice other people's voices like it's just it was such an agitating time and that's what happens when you really like stir up something that should be you know if you're trying to like excavate like you're, you're cleaning out like a pipes in a pool and it's got all these layers of like institutionalized cemented bullshit that's awful when you break all that stuff up it's going to create so much floating to the top for everybody in different ways 
you know, so I just kept reminding people, this is super normal. You can't have big shifts and change without all this other stuff. So try to process it in a healthy way so that you can then just get, you know, use that oxygen tank for a minute so that you can go actually be effective for helping people. Whether it's helping other people or helping your yourself and your people. Yeah, I think that's important. I, I, I like how you put that. And how do you feel artists have felt in this in this time period with you know, there's a, there's a million different ways to respond. Where, where do you see music and, and how does that fit into all of it? Well, some, some people responded um, really authentically with like creativity and like spoke to it, you know? Um, I think there's some people that want to speak to it, but they don't normally speak to it. So then they felt like, well, I don't want to look like I'm switching what I do, but I actually do want to switch what I do. So you know, there's, there's that. Um, and then I think there were some people who, in my opinion, have their head in the sand and didn't do anything, which I felt like if you have a platform, I feel like you do have some responsibility, you know, if you care to, to, to do something. Um, I think a lot of people felt pressured. They don't want to come out that authentic. They don't want to, you know, there was a lot of confusion. I had a lot of phone calls with like, I want to help. I don't feel right. Or I've had, you know, talks with people who were black artists who, I'm, you know, some were really out there like trying to change the world and some were not doing anything. And I was asking them. On your own what? roster, you have like one, I'm not, I, I won't like name any names because I don't want to put you on the spot to like comment, but like you have one person in particular who is like the name who speaks on this kind of stuff. Like the video got shared, you know, his speech got shared. Like the he was like one of two people that was like the comment. Um, and he's always been, he's been for a long time. Um, and then there was another person who never talks on this stuff and got criticized for talking, for, 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 for got criticized first for not talking about this stuff and then kind of talked about it, but did it in a way that ended up with some backlash. Like. You have just, it's wild, your position. You have such a spectrum uh, in, in, in your intimate life. And, and almost everyone that I work with, we've had, we during that time had like really real calls. Yeah. You know. Did you like say, like the first person I mentioned, like, did you say that, hey, will you talk to this person? Like, and I don't mean the second person, I mean just anyone in general. Have you been like, broke kinds of conversations like I'll, I'll, I'll say you know the one person you're talking about is killer mike and i'll say that <laughs> proudly because he's fucking awesome and i'm yeah. super proud to work with him and he is such an activist and advocate and leader and so it was very natural for him to do what he did um and i have other people who i've always thought were sort of leaders of thought j cole is another one you know who i'm usually thought yeah it has really strong perspective and you know he there i have over the years often been like i wish a couple of you could like hold seminars for other artists to learn how why to not i mean th that's kind of what i'm getting at with these questions like like you are creating an archetype for basically that but like these people who have the goods like why aren't they why, like why is killer mike only an advocate 
like artists, I think maybe this is changing now and this is the year, but like, why are these people not talking about like, like why are they only talking about like how to get streaming playlists and publicity and how to, how to get the, the deal, the brand deals and stuff. This right. is the shit they should talk about. This could change. I think something shifted in our industry this time. For sure. Through too many black men being killed by white police officers, but this one felt different. The way things are being handled inside meetings, I can see is different. I can see it. And um, I think that artists, you know, I have said for years, because it's been many years, like since Fergus, before Ferguson, like there's been so many years yeah. where I'm, where's the protest music? Why is, why is, why are, why don't we have like a million public enemies right now? Like why is, why is everything so stupid when actually there's more to say than ever? And you know, it, it's been really limited to the J. Coles or the Kendricks for the most part, or a killer Mike run the jewels LP. Like, you know, why is that so rare? Why it should be like making protest music. You know, we have an actual maniac in office. It's, you know, yes, people speak to it, but not as much as I would think they would. And because we were in, the, we're in this really, you know, decadent era of rap. And I think that era finally shifting because of what's happened. And I think that there are people that want to change their messaging, but they don't want to look phony. Yeah. And because the whole world and the internet are so up everybody's ass and like ready to, you know, call out any artist, I think it, it, it makes them not, like if we didn't have the internet, like back when, you know, when I was first a music fan, there was no internet. So if Prince all of a sudden wanted to make a record that was super conscious and woke, he would just do it. And maybe the critics might say what they want to say about it, but no one else really would because you didn't really have a way for, to know what everybody else was thinking. You know, it was like you and your friends would talk about what you think. You would discuss Prince's move to being woke over drinks or just, you know, you, you couldn't blast it within one weekend to millions of listeners, what your opinion is. So I think people are a little more- Opinions, like straight up, like just the word opinion. I, I'm 36 and we were not raised to have opinions. Like opinions were like about our personal lives. Like activism and issues in the world like we were introduced to it with george bush but like no one gave a shit it, like well i remember being in art school and people talking about it and i was like i know that i'm not like well versed on this i know that i'm like i know more about movies and music than i do about like the fucked up shit that george bush is doing but i know enough to know that like you don't know what you're talking about and like you just if you want to speak on this like get better and and none of us did so the chatter has become so big that, you know, and that's why I think like, I thought what Lil Baby did was really cool and, and, and authentic and brave. And he wrote a song and he really meant what he was saying. And he like, he, he, he wanted to say something and he wasn't afraid to do it and have people call him out on it. And they didn't, and, and they, they really respected, you know, that he did. And not everyone has to become an activist if that's not what your art promotes, but at least you as a human can make movements or actions towards helping this issue. Um, the show must be paused movement, you know, that um, these incredible women did. Um, I was on those Zooms and that was so incredible. Like they got, the, they had, I think it was like 1100 mostly black, like 
record industry people on a Zoom in one day. That's never happened. That's a summit on a scale that has never happened in the music industry. And so that kind of stuff is so, like, was so incredible to see. And, you know, I, I would never speak to what I heard, you know, because it's a confidential situation. But since then, I have heard many meetings and conversations and A&Rs and presidents of labels and all these things where it's like, we can't keep signing the same stuff that doesn't say anything. Like, there needs to be, like, let's, I've had ma major magazine and newspaper editors say to me, I don't see any time for months where I, I, I can be supporting something that, it, that some, an artist that isn't saying something. Right. So that was like, great. I wish that was sort of like a regular protocol, not that you yeah. <laughs> something you know sometimes it's nice to just hear like a really fun song that doesn't mean shit but there has to be the balance and this might restore some balance to music and art that has been missing in my opinion i think you know with dance music which came of this has been something i've been frustrated about for a long time that dance music comes from i mean literally specifically some gay black men who were mistreated and wanted a place to gather and talk about their issues and, and express themselves and get, get emotions out and maybe create some progress for themselves and where dance music, you know, got taken and the whole escapism of dance music is beautiful. I don't want that taken away, but I think that like we lost what it really meant so drastically and I don't know, for something that was really jarring for me that happened around um, the beginning, before any of the political stuff, the social stuff, when it was just pandemic time, when it was just shut down, a lot of my, I, I didn't see anyone who reacted, like the people who reacted, in my opinion, like the, the worst, like, like who had the, who were most thrown by, by the shutdown were like my DJ and like nightlife kind of friends who just like were completely at a loss. Like they did not know what to do. They were a lot like financial and mental health, like real crisis in like the DJ world where these people, like if you lose your, like people who lost their weekly DJ gigs, that was their 100% income and their entire like life, their, their community, their anything that they have emotionally. And they had zero other balance, but at the same time, it didn't mean anything. Like it wasn't, they weren't part of some like vibrant community that's creating, I, I don't like what original dance music was for. Like, like, like the way when we talk about like the warehouse and stuff like that, like, like it was just escapism. It was a lot of my friends that are just they are holding on for dear life to something that is just escapism. Mm -hmm. And then it was yanked from them and they were left with, so, so like they weren't left with this ideological issue. They were left with this personal issue of like, you're facing yourself and the problem that is created is that you actually have to face yourself. Like they weren't thinking about why they were gathering, what the purpose of gathering a bunch of people together could be what you could, what energy you could create by gathering these people. It was simply for a lot of people I knew, it was simply a thing that kept the days going. It, it paid their rent and 
Well, and the escapism can be really an important, beautiful thing when the world has consistently for quite a long time been pretty challenging. I mean, arguably it's always challenging. You know, everyone talks about how horrible it is now, but I remember people saying that at different times in my 50 years, you know, it, it does feel like it's at a fever pitch in a way, but you know, I think the pandemic was this perfectly aligned moment with George Floyd's murder and the movement and everyone's just sort of like existential, like what's the relationship I'm in? What is it I'm doing with my life? How am I going to survive? Like it was this perfect star alignment of a shit show that, that ha it's almost like when, you know, it all burns down, there's gotta be a Phoenix that comes up from that flame. It just has to. And so I think a lot of Phoenixes are coming up from the flame now. And I think the pandemic has made, I haven't met anybody that hasn't like kind of reassessed what they're doing or what the point of anything is, or yeah. it's so it's been so profoundly reflective. Um, for, for everyone, even people who are still busy and happening, some people who are like, my whole life stopped. People who've been together for a long time with their partners and, and they, they've never in their time together spent 24 seven, you know, like it's, it is, or, or people who've never been totally alone. Yeah. And now, you know, so it's, it's just such a profound 2020 will be a year no one forgets. And I feel very hopeful in that, because of what a shit show it's been, this, this, I can't wait to see the phoenix that arises from this flame. When do you think that's gonna, I don't know, what do you think is the next? So like, there's, there's, there's technical aspects that are like making things. So like you do press and all the outlets, you can't get, this is like a technical thing that when you, when you fire, when they furlough and fire regular staff writers, every article becomes freelance and every article costs money. So you can't get the same kinds of, even if there's meaningful stuff, you know, artists putting things out that say something like the whole system has really shifted and it's, it's really difficult to, I don't know, to, how have you seen people, you know, adjusting and like, well, yeah. For us, knock on wood, we're very busy and people are still completely putting out art and getting success from it. And we, we are booking and doing a lot of press, you know, so in some ways, um, this, this whole thing shows what industries are kind of pandemic proof and which aren't. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is pandemic proof and isn't? I think... Sorry to take you off, but that was like a, you know... <laughs> People whose business is transactionally almost all done on the internet. Um, the internet's alive and well during the pandemic. So it's, you know, obviously it like people who have any like adherence or reliance on like in real life stuff, you know, those people have seen things evaporate and it just shows we've all been complaining how digital music is you know, for those of us that worked in the industry before the internet, um, back when even small bands would sell a lot of records and make really good money. Um, now there's no middle class in music. You're either kind of struggling or you're killing it and middle class is harder. Um, but 
the one thing is music becoming so digital and, and just so reliant on that, it's meant that it's totally weathering it, that storm right now. The pandemic storm music has become this freighter that can handle it. You know, the live part of it for artists is huge and that's how they make so much money. But, you know, they are all still creating. The creating is huge. Everyone, this is the first time that ever any of these artists have been home for these chunks of time. Right. They're all creating. Everybody's in the studio. Everybody is yeah, well, The touring stuff has, has made our calendar shift over the last few decades where artists like who used to put a record out every year, the comparable version of that is are now doing it every like four years or something like that because they're on the road forever. You know, and now I think that next year we are going to have a major renaissance period of art. There is going to be so much visual and music, visual art and music coming out because everyone has been making it. Um, and hopefully the world opens up. Hopefully we have a whole new regime and leader. You know, there, so 2021 could really start to show us the phoenix rising from the flame. You know, um, I, I think November has a huge amount to do with that. Our election is, it, we all, we keep saying this, oh, this is the most important election ever, but this one really is. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of civil and social unrest that will come either way of who wins, right? you know? And so it, it's, we might have a lot more fire in America before that Phoenix gets to rise. I think I either direction, whichever, what, whoever wins, you know, there's gonna be fire. Yeah, we're so opposed. We're, we're, we are an absolutely divided nation. Things are gonna burn one way or another. It's, it's gonna be, I keep saying shit show. It's like, all I can think of, when I think of 2020, I just, it's just shit show. Like it's, it's the only word, there's the only term I can think of. And it's, it's just been this, just mass, just all this stuff. So it'll be interesting. I do think there's a Renaissance coming artistically. I pray there's a social Renaissance coming and that, that will really yeah. we're gonna be well into 2021 before we start to see that. Um, and you know, all anyone can really do is try their best to keep that oxygen mask on. And to me, that's just being present. When we live in the past and when we live in the future, we are in discomfort. If every moment we can try to be present, use your eyes, your nose, your ears, your skin, you know, use your senses to like, what's happening in this exact moment? My air conditioning just went on. I can hear my kids in the hallway. My dog keeps moving. My arm itches right now. The back of my neck is hot. I have a little bit of a sore throat. That's what's happening for me right now. And when I'm doing that, I can't be worried or stressed. So you just have to keep doing it over and over. It's like emotional kittens in a basket. And if we can all kind of keep ourselves regulated during the shit show and making good decisions and trying to, you know, keep our oxygen mask on and then being of service, I think we can get through this. But we have to be of service. We are such a selfish society. And, and that was, was beautiful about seeing people risk their lives to go out into the world, yeah. you know, protest and like be of service. So if everyone just like stays present, takes care of yourself and be of service, you know, we could really get to a better place here. 
it's nice that the net after those protests, I mean, which are still, you know, some are still ongoing, but that that didn't spread the virus. Like, yeah. that was so cool that that happened. You know, it was just such a great part of the narrative that could have been a terrible part of the narrative if everyone at the protests got sick. I to go there. I mean, I, I counted because we went and got tested. We pouted with a family and they're like, we love you guys, but you've been to too many protests. Like, can you go get retested? Of course. And, you know, when I counted up, I just kind of looked through, you know, we'd gone to like, you know, 17 or so something protests. And I don't remember being at even one of them where I felt the one in, there was one in downtown LA or in Hollywood one time where I'm like, people are too close together. I do see some people without masks, but mostly I did see people super masked up. Yeah, they're closer together than you should be, but there was still dis, you know, distance. But, you know, since we don't really know how this thing spreads, because that's a whole other topic and it's random how people are getting it and not getting it. But the fact that there doesn't seem like this big jump from the protests show that masks really do do something. You know, um, and so all the people who are so like belligerent because they're being asked to wear a mask. How political it is. Stupid. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go in a second too. I have to go deal with my children. Okay. Yeah. I still haven't even fed because I coached and then I came right to you. So I'm being a terrible I know. You've been on a whole, you had a, had a serious Saturday, but I really appreciate the time and, and I appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, I appreciate mostly like how in it you are and, and there's no one I, you know, I, I trust more to, to be in that position. And, and I appreciate your wisdom. Thanks. <laughs> I feel like we could have talked for many more hours. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many threads here. Let's be in regular talking. I would love that. Yeah. And I'm happy you're doing well. I'm happy your kids are doing well. I'm happy nobody's sick and uh you we, we you know for 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 those listening like this is one of the people who's really like like keeping the lights on around culture because all these connections that we're talking about there's a lot of um all these like micro connections that that Catherine is focused on like this is stuff you're reading every day like these are major major moments so the reverberations around your interpersonal connections reflect that of like the culture so yeah it's it's really powerful like this you've done it for a long time but i feel like you know never to such the stakes are crazy high and yeah i mean i i, I trust you to to manage that <laughs> that means a lot and yeah. i'm glad you're doing and having conversations and you know i really hope that you uh figure out what's happening for you oh thank you hopefully yeah i'm brand i just got back i've been i was away for the whole year so i think i'll get there but yeah it's, it's new it's okay and anyway thank you so much for the time and it's it's always great to talk thank and you the rest of the weekend mellow out <laughs> bye, All right, bye.